part two, an audience with His Holiness. We woke the following morning at Sparrow's Fart for the first leg of our pilgrimage. A short walk down the mountainside to the Dalai Lama's monastery in McLeod Gange. There, we would be joined by hundreds, if not thousands, of other pilgrims offering prayers in His Holiness's honour, wishing him a long and happy life. So, what the fuck is a Dalai Lama and how do you become one? Born Lamo toned up to a poor farming family in Tuxter in the northeast of the Tibetan Plateau, he was pronounced the 14th Dalai Lama back in 1939 after being discovered by a search party of monks dispatched to find the reincarnation of his predecessor, Tupton Gyatso, who died in 1933. Finding the new incarnation of the Dalai Lama requires an elaborate quest comprised of consulting oracles, interpreting visions and reading spiritual signs, writes journalist Matt Wade from the Sydney Morning Herald. Senior monks may find clues from the deceased body of the previous Dalai Lama, such as the direction it faces or its posture. If the body is cremated, the direction of the smoke is monitored as a potential indicator for the direction of rebirth, he writes. Once these visions and signs have been followed up and a potential child has been found, there is a series of tests to verify the rebirth. The child is presented with artefacts, some of which belonged to the previous Dalai Lama. If the child identifies which objects belonged to the Dalai Lama, it is taken as a sign. The current Dalai Lama was found at the age of two after a senior monk saw his village and house in a vision at the Oracle Lake. The young boy was able to pinpoint artefacts that had belonged to the previous Dalai Lama, including a drum used for rituals and a walking stick. It's mine! It's mine, he is reported to have said. The boy was then educated by monks and prepared for his lifelong monastic role. He was pronounced the new Dalai Lama in 1940 and renamed Tenzin Gyatso. In 1959, the new Dalai Lama fled Tibet during the Tibetan uprising against Chinese occupation, escaping to India, where he has lived ever since alongside thousands of other Tibetan exiles. A hot-button issue in the 1990s, the Tibetan fight for freedom has faded from the mainstream consciousness, though not because things have gotten better. The situation remains as bleak as ever in Tibet, and you'll find Tibetan monks and civilians sharing insane stories of persecution and escape throughout Dharamshala, McLeod Gange, and elsewhere in the Himalayas. One film poster I saw told the story of over 160 Tibetan monks who had self-immolated in Tibet in protest against Chinese occupation. An act in which they douse themselves in petrol, sit in meditation, and burn themselves alive. For his unshakable commitment to kindness, compassion and peace, His Holiness was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989 
and his life's work puts him alongside modern history's greatest figures. Up there with Gandhi, Mandela, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Thich Nhat Hanh, and so on. My mother had made the pilgrimage here to meet him in the late 90s, but I never truly entertained the thought of seeing him alive in the flesh. Now it was upon us, I was overwhelmed by emotion, and I wasn't the only one. Taylor Kitts takes up the story. I just had this huge grin on my face. Um, And because he did too, he's just like this cute, smiley guy. Like just the level of devotion that, that people have for him. You know, people are like, you know, doing prostrations in front of him and It was just pretty surreal. Like, I felt like I was, like, levitating a little bit. (laughs) After loading up on a traditional Tibetan breakfast in a cafe filled with monks adjacent to the monastery, we made our way through security and inside. To say it was tense at the checkpoint was a vast understatement. The guards at the metal detectors were taking no chances. We were forced to give up our phones, empty our bags on the ground and use whatever ointments and lip balms we'd brought in front of them to prove it wasn't some poison we were planning to squirt on his holiness. For the first time in my life, I had my dick and balls properly grabbed while being frisked by a humorless Tibetan jarhead. It was semi-rattling, but something I was willing to cop given the might of China would love nothing more than to squirt a syringe full of Novichok in the Dalai's face. entered the monastery to the sound of dozens of monks chanting in a room up above us and took our seat among a sea of Tibetans and a smattering of foreigners. A red carpet had been unrolled and covered in tiny flowers. Ornate Tibetan decorations hung from every nail and awning. Old ladies joined in on the chanting as they massaged Tibetan beads. Then it happened. A procession of regally dressed monks holding an assortment of ancient instruments and steel staffs filed through the gates into a guard of honour for His Holiness. The music began and then he appeared. The greatest living testament to peace and resilience on earth, flanked by a security detail of a dozen or so trained killers. As he made his way past us, not more than a few metres away, a little Tibetan toddler ran beneath the security tape towards his holiness. As the security rushed to pick the kid up and carry him back, the Dalai laughed and shooed them away. As he greeted the tiny Grom, the kid dropped to the ground and started performing the traditional Tibetan prayer for his holiness. It was then I noticed a strange salty fluid at the corners of my eyes. I rubbed at it and unsure of what it was, consulted Tay. Yeah, I think he just blessed this little kid and then gave him back to the family. (laughs) And it was, uh, yeah, it was super cute. I think this family was really excited on that. The irony that all this fanfare was for him was not lost on the Dalai Lama. At every opportunity, he tried to make light of the situation, smiling, laughing and accepting well wishes without taking any of it too seriously. 
At one point, I watched him lock eyes with an older Western man with a ponytail in the crowd opposite us. I'll never forget this. The Westerner with the PT and the Dalai Lama exchanged knowing looks, then started properly pissing themselves. The sentiment, at least to me, seemed to be, what? All this for me? What a G up. Are you kidding me? But I'll take it. The Dalai Lama then took up a position on an ornate chair surrounded by chanting monks as a long line of Tibetans, Indians and foreigners filed in to meet him with gifts. While all this was going down, outside in the courtyard where we were, young monks did the rounds, handing out fruit, rice, chocolate bars and the famous Tibetan tea made of yak butter, salt, water and tea leaves. This hearty, heartwarming drink is a staple among mountain people and can keep you going for hours. The Dalai's piss take continued. As monks greeted him with gifts, he rubbed their bald heads and gave them a blessing. As Westerners greeted him with gifts, he clenched his fist and knocked on their heads as if to check whether there was anything inside, while also pissing himself laughing. He ate chocolate bars and bananas, bantered in between the greetings and generally took the piss out of the regal pageantry of the occasion. It was classic. He then delivered an hour or so long sermon during which old Tibetan ladies ensured we got more than our share of food and drink. I took that time to pray for his holiness to live a long and happy life as was the stated intention of this puja. In doing so, I stumbled upon the ancient wisdom of events like this. By praying for the Dalai Lama to live a long and happy life, I was forced to step out of my own suffering, which was significant, considering the sleep deprivation, jet lag, dietary change-ups, climate shifts, and various other tweaks involved in travelling halfway around the world. For all the well-wishers, this ceremony was essentially an hours-long meditation on loving kindness. While for His Holiness, the puja was a meditation on gratitude. On a neurological level, it was fucking genius and exactly what you'd expect from the culture that gave us Chumo, the breathing technique that is basically Wim Hof, and various modalities of meditation. By the end of it, we'd all be left feeling very mad. Because the sermon was in Tibetan, We understood none of it, though a Tibetan man sitting next to us conveyed the gist of what had been said. It went off inside our heads like a Tibetan gong. Essentially, His Holiness had told his followers what he does to be the person he is and instructed them to do the same. At the end of the day, he was just flesh and bones like the rest of them, nothing special. What he told them was that he wakes up every morning and does his breath work, which enables him to live a long and happy life, practice compassion, kindness and peace, and represent the plight of the Tibetan people. Blow me over with a feather and fuck me sideways. The synchronicity of the Dalai Lama's message with the protocol that formed the basis of our inaugural swellness pilgrimage were pretty much identical. We were fucking on point.
In the third and final part of the inaugural Swellness Pilgrimage podcast, we hit the mountains, meditating in Misto monasteries, surrounded by chanting monks and snow-capped peaks. We trek to the Valley of the Gods, and the boys overdo it on the famed Manali cream hashish. Yeah, it definitely is not a performance-enhancing uh, substance, is it? Like... And, and I, I guess it was all about trying to find a balance there for me because um, I didn't want to go all the way to the Himalayas and just, you know, behave like I was on the set of Cheech and Chong the entire time. If you'd like to take part in a swellness pilgrimage to the Himalayas alongside a committed crew of core lords like Jimmy Pringle, register your interest at uptheswellians at gmail.com. That's uptheswellians at gmail.com. Next trip takes place from October 2nd to the 15th. Come You are now listening to Holger Shugay's Ode to Perfume. Thank you.